And if you ask patients who have these conditions and you say, you know, do you think you're going to have depression next week? They would say, well, of course I will. I've had this for 10 years. Why would I not have it next week? And so what we're doing with this psilocybin is we're introducing this transient state of high entropy. And this is reflected in, in the activity in the brain during the effects of the drug that, that then has an, a sort of a longer tail of sort of disrupting these sort of rigid behavioral states, if you will. Welcome to the Mindfulness Experience Podcast. My name is Keith Fiveson. The official podcast for the Psychedelic Science Convention 2023, and today we're thrilled to have one of the pioneers in the field of psychedelic nursing, Mr. Andrew Penn. As a co-founder of OpenNurses.org, an organization of psychedelic and ethnogenic nurses, Andrew has been on the forefront of the movement to integrate psychedelic therapies into mainstream healthcare. Andrew is also a clinical professor in the Department of Community Health Systems at the School of Nursing at the University of California in San Francisco. He brings a wealth of knowledge and expertise in mental health, addiction, and trauma, having worked as a nurse practitioner at the San Francisco Veterans Administration Residency Program. But that's not all. Andrew is also a co-principal investigator at the Translational Psychedelic Research Program, acronym is TRIP Lab, and he's leading a study on psilocybin facilitated therapy for major depression, which is sponsored by USANA Institute. With such an impressive background and an extensive experience in psychedelic nursing, Andrew is a true trailblazer in the field. I'm really excited. We're excited to have him here on the Mindfulness Experience podcast as he shares his experience about his work, his insights, and the vision for the future of the psychedelic therapies and mindfulness in healthcare. So please join me in welcoming Mr. Andrew Penn to the Mindfulness Experience podcast. Hey, 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 I am here with Andrew Penn, who is uh, involved in the Psychedelic Science 2023 convention. And I really want to first say I'm so honored for you to be here and to have this opportunity to lift up your session there. You're going to be doing a session, I believe you said, uh, it's uh, who can be a psychedelic therapist, and that'll be at the convention in June. Can you talk a little bit about that and talk about you know your background and really why are you at the convention? Yeah, thanks, Keith, and thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, so my background is as a nurse. I'm a psychiatric nurse practitioner by training and have been for about 20 years, and um, I've also the co-founder of an organization called Open Nurses or the Organization of Psychedelic and Entheogenic Nurses. And part of our mission is to really uh, include nurses in the um, in psychedelic therapy in all aspects. And what we're going to be talking about in this session is, so I'm going to be part of a panel uh, mm -hmm. along with some, some colleagues uh, from different backgrounds. And we're going to be talking about this this question, which is becoming increasingly relevant as we get closer to FDA approval of things like MDMA, of, of how are we actually going to deliver 
the therapy that needs to go along with these compounds. And as anybody who's been following the psychedelic space knows, this is a, a an active and and really a challenging question because this is really the first time where we've had a treatment where it's both a drug and a psychotherapy. And I would argue it's primarily a psychotherapy that is catalyzed by a drug. So that creates some regulatory challenges because the FDA, who will be responsible for approving the drug, really is not familiar with psychotherapy. They don't regulate psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. And so we're sort of awaiting guidance from them as to what their, what their regulatory um, guidelines are going to be. Mm -hmm. And we've also looking at, we're also starting to look at just the scale issue. You know, people like Rick Doblin have talked about needing between 50 and 100,000 psychotherapists or uh, psychedelic therapists, I should say, in order to deliver this work. And that's going to create some real challenges because we don't have enough conventional therapists mm -hmm. right now uh, in many, many areas, areas of the country, even even resource rich and densely populated ones like the San Francisco Bay Area, it's really hard to find a conventional therapist who has availability right now. And so what we're going to explore in this session, as I understand it, is is really how do we bring multiple different professional backgrounds into this work mm -hmm. uh, in order to provide the safe container and the therapeutic guidance that people are going to need to safely and successfully undergo psychedelic therapy. And my small piece of it will be to talk about the role that nurses can play mm -hmm. in, in this work. Well, it's, uh, it's fascinating because you and I, uh, we talked a little bit before the session and uh, you went to the California Institute of Integral Studies, I understand, and you have that background. You're also yeah. a nurse. You also are able to administer uh, you know, uh, the medicine, if you will. Uh, and I know that MDMA will probably, you know, through the FDA, uh, probably be legal by next year, uh, maybe even sooner than that, according to some of the things that I've heard. But, um, you know, so what is the role of nursing? You're the founder of OpenNurses.org, an organization of psychedelic and ethnogenic nurses. And what kind of support and community does that organization offer to nurses in the field? And, you know, really, how has it contributed to the growth and acceptance of psychedelic therapies in the mainstream healthcare? Is there this growth? Is that is that one of the paths? And then from your view, perhaps you can talk to the other elements that might be involved with that, obviously, from a therapeutic viewpoint and how that might mesh together. Absolutely. So I'm a co-founder of the organization. So I, I was a co-founder along with three of my colleagues from that CIS program. So Angela Ward and Wendy Marusich and Liz Willis and I, uh, when we went through the program back in 2017, and it's funny to say back in 2017 as if it was <laughs> a long time ago, but yeah. as we all know, you know, psychedelics and gender time dilation. And it seems like a lot has happened in those short few short years. Mm. One of the things that we realized is that w while we knew a handful of nurses in the space, you know, we knew people like Annie Mithoffer and Maria Mangini and Karen Cooper, we we didn't really know that many nurses in the space. Yeah. And 
And as we we started talking about it, we realized how well situated nurses were to doing this work. And uh, Wendy Marusic has, has coined this really lovely phrase that nurses are the Swiss Army knife mm. of psychedelics. And you know, in the same way the Swiss Army knife can do lots of different things, nurses can do a lot of different things in the psychedelic space, including you know not only administering medication and managing the physiologic side effects, but also we're a profession that is no stranger to long days with a patient at the bedside in a non-ordinary state. Hmm. You know, if you, uh, a lot of therapists, when you tell them, uh, yeah, you know, these sessions can be six, seven, eight hours long, they kind of look at you with raised eyebrows. And, you know, my nurse friends say, well, that's a short shift in the ICU. You know, a, a, a typical shift is 12 hours. Uh, with a patient in a non-ordinary state of consciousness. So so this idea of being present and delivering care and really supporting the patient's own healing process, those are all, that's the native intelligence of nurses. Mm -hmm. And you, know, you, couple, you couple that with the fact that nurses are the most trusted uh, profession in America and have been for the last two decades. And also adding in this this thorny question that we've had in the psychedelic space of how do we care for the physical body during mm -hmm. psychedelics? Because mm -hmm. clearly the psychedelic affects not only the the emotional and psychological experience, but also the physiologic experience. And, you know, people can sort of lose awareness of their body, for example. And so there's a lot of a lot of the reason why we have these sessions be attended is is to make sure that the person stays safe. But, you know, we know in our research studies that we prepare for the possibility that somebody might uh, lose control of their bladder, for example, during a session. And, you know, and while it's, it certainly doesn't happen very often, it, it can happen. And the idea that, that nurses are, are quite comfortable and taking care of somebody's physical body in a in a way that's appropriate, safe, and mm -hmm. respectful, and certainly never sexual um, would is is also something that I think nurses bring to this. I mean, nurses touch patients' bodies every day in the course of delivering care, mm -hmm. and it's really it's a non-issue in within nursing. You you don't hear about scandals in nursing about sexual abuse, for example. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another area where where nurses really bring a strong suit to the to the work. And mm -hmm. so we we founded this organization in kind of a you know that old if you if you build it they will come kind of idea and and so we we just sort of bootstrapped this together with a website and a Facebook page mm -hmm. and a mailing list and lo and behold over the last two and a half almost 3 years now we have uh we have over 2000 people that subscribe to our newsletter. We do a monthly interview series that we archive on YouTube. So we've now done I think probably close to 30 or more interviews with mm -hmm. nurses and nursing aligned uh, colleagues in our in our field asking them about the work that they're doing and mm -hmm. and we've really become a, a resource for younger nurses or nurses that are thinking about transitioning mm -hmm. into psychedelic work how do you get into this work what kind of training is there what what are the regulatory issues to think about um so so this it's it's really been a, a delightful success in in having nurses realizing that there's so many nurses not only in the u.s but you know we have people on our mailing list from who live in africa who live in europe who live in asia um really there's an international interest from nurses uh, around how to do this work and increasingly we're seeing interest from the the psychotherapy space because um what i think we are all starting to realize as i mentioned earlier is that we just don't have enough we don't have enough therapists to do this work 
Mm-hmm. Um, and there's going to be a, a an additional challenge that's introduced when people leave more conventional practice to to engage in psychedelic therapy work that you know if you were a therapist seeing say 20 or 25 clients a week and you go down to doing four psychedelic sessions a week and maybe a day of integration and preparation well who's going to treat those other 21 patients hmm. You know, certainly there's not an abundance of, of therapists with time on their hands now. So I think it actually might have the unintended consequence of of putting more pressure mm-hmm. on the system rather than relieving it. And, you know, people that are uh, maybe more optimistic about this modality would say, well, you're going to cure a bunch of those people. And, and while mm-hmm. there may be some people that can go through a treatment and no longer need additional treatment, what we're starting to see in later studies is that while these treatments do have a pretty profound effect for a lot of people that effect uh, does have an expiration date mm-hmm. and they they probably will need repeated doses over time you know maybe two or three times a year something like that for depression but mm-hmm. it's probably not going to be a one and done model and so right. so all these things really introduce these challenges of, of well how are we going to actually operationalize this mm-hmm. and we really think that nurses are going to be a central part of, of addressing that issue well i i really love the uh, mission and i love what you've done with OpenNurses.org. Um, and the growth of it is tremendous. You and I talked a little bit before we got together on the podcast here about, uh, you know, preparation, dosing, and then integration. So, you know, in my view, certainly the preparation is very important. This is the psychological mindset, if you will, to go ahead and get you into the mood or get you into the understanding of where you're going to be going and how you're going to be doing it, right? And then there is the dosing element which is also very important, the setting, if you will, right? So the mindset, the setting, and in the setting, this is where I certainly see OpenNurses.org, you know, and the opportunity to dose and work with, you know, individuals while they're in a very non-ordinary state and they're in a state of vulnerability. I mean, to your point, there's a lot of trust there. But then I also believe that there is a real opportunity in the integration this is the breathing process the ability to talk through the ability to look at and the ability to integrate into one's life and activate you know a lot of the a lot of the things that come up because we all know that you know you don't just sort of get through your journey and then all of a sudden you pop up and you're a new person i mean that doesn't happen no. so I'm, I'm i'm just wondering you know with your work here you've done a lot of work um, you know, can you talk to that and talk to, you know, perhaps some of the other work that relates to, 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 you know, opennurses.org and how, the, how, how does it all come together? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree that, that there's been probably too much focus on the drug experience itself and not enough on the preparation and integration. I mean, look, we, we love um, miracle cures in this culture, right? We love the idea that you're going to take a pill. I mean, you know, I've seen these headlines that, you know, one dose of magic mushrooms and depression was gone. Right. And, and, and it's unfortunate that that's the narrative that's being promulgated because what it, what it erases is really the intention, which is critical, as you point out, and then the integration work. 
And, you know, one of the things that I think um, nurses do a lot of is is working with patients both before and after an event. So, you know, somebody who might be undergoing a major surgery, for example, mm-hmm. um, is, is going to need preparation as, as to how their life might change following that surgery. Or I think about I think about midwives who work mm-hmm. with uh, with people that are birthing right and and there's a lot of preparation and there's and there's a lot of uh, in fact we i was part of a a writing team that that wrote an article in the journal of uh, midwifery and women's health really drawing these parallels that that you know when you go to those those uh healthy baby um visits before you give birth you know a lot of that is is measuring your vitals and things like that but a lot of it is actually developing a relationship Mm -hmm. and it's it's developing trust and an ability to let go um so starting to sound familiar um and and so when the when the birth actually happens and things get difficult there's already that established relationship of trust that 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 can be mm-hmm. um, that can be leveraged in those moments, and and what we're really encouraging people to do in that setting, and very similar to psychedelics, is that we're encouraging them to trust that the process will unfold in a way that ultimately is helpful, mm-hmm. even if in that very moment that notion seems kind of questionable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think there's been many a person giving birth who has said, you know, get me out of here, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm probably more than one person in the middle of a psychedelic session who would like to hit the eject button and get out. But, you know, mm-hmm. once you're in, you've kind of committed. Right. And and what you need in that moment of, of fear or apprehension is to be able to look at somebody who you've already spent the time with and for, for you to know on some kind of cellular level that you're mm-hmm. going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're doing in the in right. the preparation. And then the integration, you know, to extend it to the the childbirth is sort of like the postpartum visits. Mm. You know, it's the oh my gosh, I have a baby and I'm not sure what how to do this. Right, right. Um oh my gosh, I've had these insights and I'm not sure how to work them into my life. Mm. Um because you know, insights are great. Um, but they are they're a little bit like morning dew you know they they evaporate as soon as the day gets underway right. and and it's very easy to have an insight and really not do anything with it you know mm-hmm. and I think that's probably I think we've all probably been guilty of that in some form yeah. or yeah um, well and that's part of the problem because we're habitual human beings and there we can get into a rut pattern and that's part of the challenge especially for individuals who have you know who have depression or have you know started to push down things that uh, happened in their lives traumas that they didn't want to look at or had reaction formations to specific events that i'll 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 never go hungry again and of course you know right uh, they 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 hoard you know so that could be the alternative to that now you're working with people who have major depression you're doing some work at the translational psychedelic research program and you're doing some work uh, where you're studying uh, psilocybin facilitated therapy for major depression can you talk to that a little bit because i i know that we're you know we it sounds like we may be jumping around but it but it's all very uh, related right because an individual has to have the preparation, they have to have the journey, they're exposed, they're subconscious, they have a non-ordinary state, and then they come back and then, you know, they have to look at it from an integration or activate it in terms of 
things that they do differently in their lives. I'm just wondering what you, you know, your focus in this area and what do you hope to achieve in the research? What have you seen so far? Yeah, so I'm fortunate to work with a really great team of people that's read, led by uh, Dr. Josh Woolley. So we we call ourselves the Tripper Lab or the mm. uh, Translational <laughs> Research Psychedelics Program um, at UCSF, and we've done a number. We've been part of a number of studies. Um, we started out uh, under the leadership of Jenny Mitchell, uh, working on the uh, MDMA assisted therapy mm-hmm. uh, treatment for PTSD, which was the the first of the MAPS Phase Three studies and uh, gone on to be a site for the USONA-sponsored study of a single dose of psilocybin uh, for major depressive disorder. That was a placebo-controlled trial. And then in more recent years, we've worked on a number of investigator-initiated studies. So one that we're getting close to wrapping up is a small uh, pilot study looking at safety and efficacy of psilocybin-assisted treatment in people with Parkinson's disease and depression, mm. which is a common comorbidity. Around 50% of people with Parkinson's will also have major depression. And that's a, an important and novel study because most people with progressive neurological diseases like Parkinson's have been excluded from previous studies just in the interest of safety. And mm-hmm. so we're we're looking to see if this can be done safely to treat the depression. To be clear, not we're not aiming to treat Parkinson's disease with this, but to treat depression. Mm-hmm. And we're getting started with a study of people with bipolar 2 depression, mm-hmm. which is also an, another uh, sort of area that's been unexplored up until now because most mm-hmm. people with bipolar disorder have been excluded from existing trials. So I believe we're the, the second study now to be working on that. Um, and then uh, we're eventually going to do a study on chronic low back pain and uh, using a psilocybin intervention. Really? Low that. back pain? <laughs> low back pain. Yeah. Yeah. And and that may seem like kind of an outlier, but you know, when you, when you look at, uh, when you look at the sort of trans-diagnostic value of psychedelic therapies. My uh, my colleague now at UCSF, uh, Robin Carhart-Harris, has done some really important theoretical uh, writing about thinking about certain disease states as uh, being that of having low en- a quality of low entropy, which is, uh, you know, physics term which which talks about predicting change, right? So there's these diseases uh, that 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 cross uh, widely across the diagnostic manual of psychiatry, but also into other areas that may be more neurological in nature, like chronic pain. Um, But these include things like depression and anorexia nervosa and PTSD and substance use disorders that all have a quality about them that they're, they're difficult to change. You know, they're difficult clinically to get somebody to shift. And if you ask patients who have these conditions and you say, you know, do you think you're going to have depression next week? They would say, well, of course I will. I've had this for 10 years. Why would I not have it next week? And so what we're doing, what we think we're doing (laughs) with this psilocybin is we're introducing this transient state of high entropy. And this is reflected in in the activity in the brain during the effects of the drug that, that then has an a, a sort of a longer tail of sort of disrupting these sort of rigid behavioral states, if you will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's where, that's when we're th- looking at something like chronic pain and that that may sort of have the, that may look on the outside like somebody has a changed relationship with that illness or with that condition. Mm-hmm. And and this is, uh, you know, to put a, maybe a more fine point on it, 
one of the things that I wonder about with psychedelic therapies is that, you know, we, we talk particularly in psychiatry in this very kind of biologic model of you either have a disease or you don't have a disease, you know, and it's sort of like how we might think about cancer or infectious disease. You know, your, your COVID test is either positive or negative, right? It's either your either or, whereas, you know, in psychiatry, we're trafficking more in maladies of the human soul, if you will. Um, and, you know, so where's the line between fear and an anxiety disorder? Where is the line between sadness and major depression? Mm. Um, it's a fuzzy line, right? And what I suspect might be happening with these psychedelic therapies is that we are changing the narrative that people have about them. So mm. we're not necessarily just eradicating the depression or eradicating the PTSD, but we're fundamentally changing the relationship that the person has to the condition so that they may still have aspects of that condition but it's not the totality of their their human experience it's not the totality of their identity it's it's they go from having this disease that kind of eclipses everything about them to this still being there but being a much smaller part of who they are and mm -hmm. and I, and i think that's that's a different model than we've kind of thought about, particularly in biological psychiatry, where we we tend to use these scales and we have this idea that if somebody drops below a certain number, then we've eradicated the disease. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I'm not sure that's exactly how it works. Hmm. So, I mean, what I'm hearing you talk about is the opportunity to really have a different relationship, uh, interrelationship with our neurology or biology or physiology or uh, ability to have a different perception of who we are. And it sounds to me a lot like mindfulness. You know, it sounds to me like a, a, a lot more like being able to be the witness to your own experience and then to be able to, in some way, um, you know, not only take a step back from it, but also sort of rewire it. And you're looking into it from a physiological viewpoint in terms of the individual's experience using psychedelics as a way to kind of dig into that is that is that kind of like what i'm hearing or am i am i putting my own spin on it no i don't think you are and you know i think one of the things that's interesting about psychedelic therapies is that mm -hmm. they really you know depending on who you're talking to it, it's really kind of like the blind men and the elephant you know this old indian yeah, parable yeah, yeah. about you know um describing different aspects of the same experience and mm -hmm. i think you know if one is looking at this uh psychedelic experience through a mindfulness lens absolutely that makes a lot of sense if you're mm -hmm. looking at it through a neuroscience lens then talking about the default mode network and mm -hmm. and changes in in uh, neural connectivity makes sense mm -hmm. if you're of a more spiritual inclination uh you know having more transport the transcendent experience mm -hmm. uh with with uh, you know god as you imagine it um mm -hmm. or the universe or you know transpersonal that you know getting outside of our little human experience that you know and we we humans being the, the kind of tribal creatures that we are sometimes mm -hmm. I, I feel like you know we, we we double down on our on our preferred explanatory model mm -hmm. um and and the, the the sort of universe smiles benevolently hope, hopefully at us and says <laughs> you know oh you silly humans you know you're you're quibbling you're all feeling an elephant okay right. you know right. and and you're all right mm -hmm. and it's and one of you doesn't need to predominate you know i mean if if we've if we've learned nothing from psychedelics it's it's to embrace the both and mm -hmm. rather than the either or 
right. there's there's a really wide field and there's room for all of it. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, mindfulness, absolutely. And we we use a lot of mindfulness in our preparation for mm -hmm. psychedelic therapy. So in our lab, when we're getting people ready for these sessions, and you know, many of these people have never had a psychedelic experience before. So this is really, you know, quite an exciting and sometimes somewhat um, frightening uh, opportunity for them. Uh, and so we we emphasize a lot of mindfulness, both. Um, sort of awareness of awareness and also uh, grounding that in the physical body. You know, mm -hmm. we use we use simple things like breath and grounding techniques, uh, body scans, things such as that mm -hmm. to really help people have a, a resource that they can go to when they are um, less able to to access their usual go to resources, you know, however successful or unsuccessful those may have been over the course of their lives but we want people to be able to come back into their breath if they become frightened mm -hmm. um, or if they get overly cerebral uh, which sometimes can happen with some subjects to really have a place where they can come back to their their physical experience and and mm -hmm. and what i think we see in integration is that that people realize that there is a that we all tell ourselves stories Right. Mm -hmm. And and I've heard, I think it was Tony Bosses that said, you know, the suffering lives in the story. Mm -hmm. And and what I suspect we are doing to some extent is we're helping people change the story about right. their own maladies. And right. and this is you know, this is very much in alignment with how I think we see uh maladies as nurses, is that you know, our first our first directive as nurses is to always provide care. If we happen to cure something along the way, that's great. But nurses take care of many things that will never be cured. You know, I think about my colleagues who do amazing work in palliative care. Mm -hmm. You know, in palliative care, by definition, you're not intending to cure somebody. You're intending to help relieve their suffering. And a lot of times what alleviates suffering is changing the story, changing the narrative around that illness. And that's that's part of what we do as as nurses, mm -hmm. um, and I think it's part of what we do as as psychedelic therapists. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, you know, in uh, the work that I do, I always say, you know, change your story, you change your life. Yeah, and uh, and the work really is about getting a different narrative, or really helping you to understand the old narrative, so you can, you know, really have some compassion or awareness around it, and then let it go, and then create a new narrative which allows you to go ahead and be empowered and yeah. have your own, you know, efficacy and your own sense of self and your own agency. So I'm wondering in your opinion, um, you know, as we start to take a look at the story, as we start to take a look at healthcare and the state of healthcare, you know, what are um, some of the challenges that, um, you know, you believe that we're going to be seeing or have seen or you know how can we address the challenges by integrating whether or not it's mindfulness or psychedelic therapies into the mainstream medicine because you know we're going to this convention uh the convention will have maybe 10,000 people there over 300 speakers it's huge it's in Denver at the Denver Convention Center and you know but yet at the same point there's still a very small percentage of the population that really gets what the research is about and what these therapies are about. And you're right into the mix of it in, 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 in helping to create these changes. So I'm wondering what the challenges are from your viewpoint and how do you deal with those challenges? Yeah, I think one of the 
one of the big challenges is that we don't I mean ironically we do have a precedent for for this idea of working with um your your malady if you will over time and and making changes it's called psychotherapy um this is this is this is not new technology the idea of catalyzing it with a drug um is is the is the innovation here um you know and of course indigenous um indigenous populations have been using these compounds for millennia you know usually with a somewhat different paradigm you know they're not necessarily going in they're not necessarily using a psychotherapy paradigm but but there's sort of a broader context often of healing or communion with something that is larger than yourself and so i think one of the challenges we're going to have in healthcare is is how do we slot this you know it's it's sort of human nature to want to scaffold new knowledge onto old knowledge and so the 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 way that we've sort of created the mental health care landscape in this country is that you know if you have a mental health problem uh then you either take pills for it or you go to therapy or maybe you do some combination of the two but they're usually delivered by different people different clinicians who may or may not even be talking to each other um there's a real disintegration of healthcare in this country and and regardless there's a kind of there's a kind of passivity that happens in in both of these models less so in psychotherapy but definitely psychopharmacology is is sort of a wait and see model let's see what happens in the background mm -hmm. and so i think that one of the challenges we're going to have in bringing psychedelics into mainstream society i mean setting aside the logistical challenges of cost and time you know there's a there's a big kerfuffle going on right now in oregon because the first psilocybin service center just rolled out its price sheet right and you know and the the top the the sort of oddly they're they're dose they're pricing it by by grams of of active drug rather mm -hmm. than time which seems like an odd model but nevertheless um you know people are are a, a flutter that it's i think it's you know over three thousand dollars mm -hmm. for a, a session at the highest dose and frankly that didn't surprise me um you know for a number of reasons and i don't think it's because necessarily the people are, are engaging in profiteering i mean anytime you get the government involved with something there's going to be a lot more expense and fees and such and so i'm sure some of that is 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 just the overhead of of getting uh something like this off the ground in a legal fashion but mm -hmm. the other issue is time you know right. how much is people's time worth right. and, and if it's 12 out if it's 12 hours at 200 dollars an hour you're up to 2400 dollars well, exactly least. so you know i did i did some back of the envelope calculations for our for our map study and realized well you know when you look at all the prep integration and dosing sessions it's about 48 hours mm -hmm. of face-to-face -face time and mm -hmm. you have two therapists and if you're going to have the if you're going to charge if you're going to pay those two therapists you know sort of market rate which is even a low market rate in the san francisco bay area of 200 an hour you're looking at eighteen thousand dollars in labor costs alone right. right right and you know a lot of people in the psychedelic community want this to be free and i appreciate that idealism but you know unless those people are willing to go through spend all this time and money on their professional training and then work pro bono which you know many of us don't have the luxury of doing mm -hmm. um somebody's gonna have to be compensated for their time and that's gonna cost money and then there's the cost of the drug you know which is a separate right. issue and and a lot of the cost of the drug is involving and recouping the millions and millions of dollars that go into the development and so this isn't going to be cheap 
Um, and mm -hmm. so we're going to have not for the, certainly not for the therapeutic model. No, not for the therapeutic model. And we're going to have to think about how do we do this in a more cost-effective way. There's a number of different ways that we might think about. You know, one of which might be um, group dosing. You know, that's certainly uh, significant. One of, another is thinking about the the cost of the individual professionals involved. Mm -hmm. I honestly think the two therapist model is going to be dead on arrival. I just don't see that being paid for by by health insurers. It's it's a it's a lovely and enriched model. What are your I, thoughts? So, what are your thoughts about the RFRA model? I'm not familiar with that. I'm, the uh, I'm, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, the uh, sac sac sacrament as a part of a church or a community. Um, I mean, I think that you know that has has precedent, obviously, with with organizations like the Native American Church and the mm -hmm. and the ayahuasca churches. I, I worry about that being offered as sort of a pseudo therapy model mm -hmm. without the guardrails that that mm -hmm. psychotherapists have to. Right. Uh, agree to. So, you know, one of the reasons why we have professional licenses in healthcare is to protect the public from unsavory and untrained actors. It's to make sure that if you go to a clinician, that they have some at least minimal level of qualifications and that there right. is some recourse if that person harms you. I don't know if such guardrails have been created within the religious freedom. No, uh, they, they have not. And I know that uh, there's, Al I spoke with Allison Hoots uh, recently and she's created this thing called the sacred alliance which is basically to create the guardrails because to your point there aren't the guardrails there and you know the therapeutic model is the one that seems to work clearly in terms of the efficacy and in terms of the research so that's why i mentioned it yeah what, one of the things that concerns me in the psychedelic space i um i have a paper that's in review right now that rachel yehuda and i wrote and we're really sort of talking about where are the gaps that we have in our knowledge around psychedelics and how do we how do we address those to prevent them from becoming real pitfalls in in practice and one of the things that we've we talk about in there is that there's a lot of uh there's a lot of extension of these findings into settings which are not replicating the way that those findings were, came about so that's a convoluted way of saying so you know if you are a study subject at Hopkins or UCSF undergoing this this treatment, you can't and you, and you get this outcome on average. You can't necessarily say that if you go to a service center in Oregon and sit with somebody who is not gone through that training mm -hmm. and you don't go through that same screening and protocol that the that the same findings or the same level of safety will be replicated. And that this may be sort of an unpopular view within the psychedelic space, because I think there's a lot of a, a lot of rush to bring this to uh, into the public space. And I understand why, you know, prohibition is a terrible policy. It it clearly hasn't worked. And and one of the things that it has unfortunately has created is a is is a desire to want to believe everything that is opposite is true. You know, so anything that opposes prohibition therefore must be true and, and often goes unquestioned. And so anything that brings more psychedelics into the public space is seen as a, as a, a net good. And I'm not as enthusiastic about that. I'm a little more apprehensive because I, I think we, we can, I, I think there are certain groups and individuals who may be more at risk 
for bad outcomes unless they are held carefully. Now, you know, in our studies, we've probably gone the other way. We've had an abundance of caution to the, sometimes to the degree of absurdity, but that's kind of the nature of, of doing research in an academic institution is that they're incredibly conservative and, and primarily driven by safety above all else. Whereas these more community organizations are tending to sort of downplay safety risks, which I think is concerning, um, and an overstate potential benefits, uh, sometimes where we don't have evidence for those benefits. And mm -hmm. so what I'm hoping is that as this field goes forward is that those two those two uh, forces, if you will, will will have a confluence where there's some kind of reconciliation where the enthusiasts can maybe temper some of their enthusiasm and think about how to do this most safely. Mm -hmm. And you know, certainly prohibition, I hope, uh, you know, sees its way out of uh, into the dustbin of of history because that mm -hmm. that isn't an effective public policy. But that there is also um that the, the, there there can be a broadening of of the people that can benefit from this which is why we're doing these studies with groups that ex have been excluded historically from these studies is because we need to know if these people can be treated safely with with these uh, compounds as well yeah i think your point is is so valuable and so valid uh, that you know set setting and integration are really key and you know, there's a variable there based on, you know, just it, it just because you take the drug doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get the same results if you're in, you know, Oregon or whether or not you're in New York, wherever you are. A lot of it has to do with set setting and integration and also the way, you know, it is administered. So you do have to have those guardrails. You do have to have some you know, some some disciplines around how this is administered. And certainly, um, you know, looking at individuals and having some screening and having some, you know, conversations, uh, you know, th these are important uh, areas. These are important areas to look at. Let me ask you as someone who has worked in the field for many years, um, you know, and you're gonna be in Denver. I'll see you there. I look forward to that. Um, you know, where do you think things are going? And do you have any advice for, you know, uh, any professionals, nurses, therapists, um, you know, what have you, researchers that might be interested in working in the field uh, going forward? Um, you know, what kind of skills or knowledge, maybe all of that pulled together, or maybe you don't have any thoughts. You're just opening your mind and you're waiting to see what happens. I mean, you know, yeah. what what are your thoughts about that, Andrew? Yeah, you know, there's a big gold rush happening right now in the space, right? There's a lot of people that have waited a long time for this to happen, you know, myself being one of them, but there's people that have waited a lot longer than me. Um, and, and so there's an impatience, which I totally understand. And, an urge, and a kind of urgency. And that's as further underscored by the dismal state of mental health in this country, right? I mean, clearly what we're doing isn't sufficient. And so that that urgency is, is warranted and I understand it. I get a lot of, um, I get, a, I, I, so one of the things I think we're gonna need to think about is how does this get integrated into our existing healthcare system and our existing provision of mental health care? And right. And I think in in that sort of blue sky thinking, sometimes there is this uh, belief that this is going to just obliterate 
mental health treatment as we know it now. And I just don't believe that's going to be the case. I think, mm-hmm. if anything, we need to integrate it into that. And so I get messages, you know, regularly from people earlier in career than me saying, you know, I'm thinking about going uh, into nursing school or I'm thinking about becoming a therapist. I want to be a psychedelic therapist. And I say, mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's great. I would encourage you to become a regular therapist first or become a regular nurse first um, for a couple of different reasons. I mean, one, first of all, you know, the we shouldn't counter chickens till they're hatched, right? None of these compounds other than, um, you know, the off-label use of ketamine and the labeled use of esketamine are FDA approved drugs. You know, I, I, bad things could happen and they could either not be approved Uh, A very unpopular uh, opinion, which a lot of people have not even considered, or they could be severely restricted in their use. You know, we could see, uh, you know, we could see some bad outcomes that happen. You know, there's a cautionary tale. And if I could just take a quick tangent, a a drug called Chantix, which uh, came out about 20 years ago now for the treatment of smoking cessation. Mm-hmm. Berenicline. It's a it's a really uh, novel drug in treatment of smoking cessation. And of course, tobacco use kills millions of people a year around the world. And so this drug comes out. And then around 2006, there were these case reports that um, people with existing mental illness were having exacerbation of that. You know, people with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder who use tobacco at a very disproportionate rate and it shortens their lives considerably mm-hmm. um, were having this. And so the FDA throws a black box warning onto the drug. And so suddenly people stop using this drug. And of course, that means that people with schizophrenia go on to continue to use tobacco and have all the attendant health problems that go along with that. And then a few years afterwards, it turns out that that, you know, more studies were done. Turns out that wasn't the case. And the FDA pulled the black box warning off. But in the meantime, you know, a lot of people smoked a lot of cigarettes who might have not otherwise smoked them had they been treated with with varenicline. Um, and, and it and Varenicline never quite kind of regained its reputation, right? right. And I, I think it, I, I remember Chantix. Yeah. yeah, right. You know, very useful drug. Um, and I think that's a cautionary tale for the psychedelic space in that, you know, if we do this too fast and we do this without appropriate cautions and guardrails in place, then we run the risk of having some high profile bad outcomes. And I'm really watching Oregon carefully around this because, you know, while I think they could definitely show the country kind of like um, what happened with cannabis legalization that like, yeah, you can do this and the sky doesn't fall and the world doesn't end. And, you know, it's a, it turns out okay. Or there could be some very high profile bad outcomes that occur in that context. And, you know, the media that loves us right now will turn on us in an instant. Yeah. If bad outcomes come, because they're if not, it, if it if it bleeds, it leads. Exactly, because they're kind of agnostic about this. It, it, they're interested in viewers. They're not interested in supporting a positive psychedelic narrative. So whatever the the most uh, appealing story is, it's going to get attention. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure the psychedelic space is going to. It knows how to handle that. You know, I mean, this there's a cautionary tale from from the '60s. You know, when Art Linkletter, you know, was a very popular TV right. uh, personality in the day when his daughter died by suicide you know and he tried to uh, to yeah, invoke lsd LSD, yeah. lsd you know it had a tremendous right. uh, catalyst effect on getting the controlled substance oh, yeah. act passed and so i guess what i'm saying here is you know there's i i love the enthusiasm in the psychedelic space i love the people in the psychedelic space but i also feel like you know we we really need to 
there's a there's a maturational need that seems to need that I feel like needs to happen. I I kind of feel like there's you know we we keep calling well, it the psychedelic renaissance, but it feels like the psychedelic adolescence sometimes. Yeah. It has to be a little bit of titration, a little bit of you know yeah, gotta, you know, a little bit on off. You know you got to deal with it because we are also dealing with systemic or societal trauma that really is around you know the censorship of psychedelics absolutely (laughs) and and and, you know and ask anybody who's traumatized who's been through a trauma and i and i do feel like the drug war has been a collective trauma for many people that you know the first thing that that does to you is it makes you not able to trust anybody exactly right and so that's what happened when we lied to people about the effects of drugs for 50 years mm-hmm. is that that we we sacrifice you know the first casualty of war is truth right and so that's what's happened and so there's a lot of uh well you, you said reaction formation earlier you know there's a lot of this idea that if if it's if it's anti-prohibitionist it must be true right, right. And and I want to be very clear. I have I have no interest in in continuing uh, or increasing prohibition, but I do feel like it's incumbent on the psychedelic community to do this right. Mm. If, and and I understand their impatience. I understand the urgency. Mm-hmm. But if we don't do it right, we really run the risk of setting the clock back another fifty years. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I'm not yeah. sure. I'm not sure any of us who are alive now are going to be around to, to get to see the next go round if we don't get it right this time. Yeah, yeah. Well, though, that's that's a, a really good uh, point uh, to sort of end on or to crescendo on. And I really do believe that. And I think Denver is uh, and the Psychedelic Science 2023 conference convention is going to really help uh, in terms of you know lifting that up and providing some some structure around that uh because uh, i i myself i i went through the 60s i you know i i saw the drug wars i was involved with all of that and i saw that you know what what happened with nixon and so on and so forth so i'm really glad that we're at this point but i'm also very concerned that we go by the route of cannabis in some way that there's you know a huge underground that we wind up seeing you know the proliferation or the use without the guardrails or without the structure or without the you know the sensibilities around it to go ahead and make sure that it's used properly so mm-hmm. yeah yeah absolutely yeah. So, yeah i think i think we can do this i but i think it has to come from us you know I, and and that means we're going to have a lot of sort of uncomfortable conversations uh, around how to do this um but i would rather that we be uncomfortable on our terms than say a government regulator's terms, which is right. where it'll come from if we don't do it right. right. So, so right. I, I think we have an opportunity here, but it does require a little bit of tempering of our enthusiasm, which, you know, maybe somewhat of an unpopular opinion, but I, I'm going to stick to it. And I'm going to support you. So, thank you, uh, thanks, you Keith. Know, <laughs> you're you're welcome. So, Andrew Penn, uh, how can people get a hold of you if they want more information on? OpenNurses.org or any of the other projects that you're involved with. Yeah, so OpenNurses.org has a has a slight little trick to it. It only has one N, and so it's O P E N U R S E S dot org. And um, people can reach me through my website, which is Andrew Penn N P, as in nurse practitioner dot com. Great, and I uh, again thank you so much. I'm looking forward to. Uh, seeing you, shaking your hands, giving you a, a bro hug when we're in Denver. And, uh, you know, I really wish you a lot of luck on your 
on your talk uh, and your session when you're out there. And uh, thank you very much again for being on the Mindfulness Experience podcast. Thanks, Keith. I appreciate the opportunity and look forward to meeting you and and lots of other folks in in Denver. It's going to be a great time. Good. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Mindfulness Experience podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We have other exciting guests coming up in the next few weeks, so stay tuned. For more mindfulness tips and tricks, visit our website at workmindfulness.com. Thanks again for being a part of the Mindfulness Experience. This is Keith Fiveson.